Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Afghanistan and the future of foreign policy. And Richard, we are recording this episode in the wake of a speech from President Trump uh, announcing a shift in policy in Afghanistan to wit, well, you know, what we know at this point, more troops, uh, more of a focus on what the president defines as American national security interests rather than what he defines as nation building in Afghanistan, more pressure on Pakistan and a time frame for withdrawal based uh, on conditions on the ground. So candidate Trump had a habit of saying that the war in Afghanistan was basically a waste of blood and treasure, and he was essentially echoing many of his, his own critics now who say that this is so open-ended that we're just never going to get out of it. Are, are you more sympathetic to that point of view or to the one that the president laid out earlier this week? Well, I basically am somewhat more sympathetic to the view that the president laid out this past week. Uh, but on foreign affairs, and particularly on things like Afghanistan, it's so difficult to make a reasoned judgment because uh, the president, any president, and on this particular occasion, I don't think Trump misbehaved by anybody's standards. Um, what you have to do is to keep confidential the particulars of the plan unless you tip off the enemy. And if you can't inform your constituencies of what you're doing, they're rightly going to be skeptical particularly since this war has been going on in one form or another for about uh, 16 years. Um, but if you start to review the bill bidding and ask yourself, is there anything on the face of this which is wrong or wrong-headed? I don't think so. The uh, basic argument that he says, I'm going to stay until conditions change on the ground, is a direct repudiation of the Obama position, which says we have a hard end date, and if we don't win by that date, we're just going out. I regard that as a disastrous policy because it means that the other side knows what the end is what they do is they start to build up strength. Uh, people who are going to side with the United States will start to flick away from them in the last six months or a year of the occupation unless they be subject to vengeance. And so the whole thing starts to clatter down even before you leave. If you say you're going to stay for the duration, then at least you have a chance of securing allies on the ground because they think that your commitment is credible. Uh, the hard point about that is that our friend Trump is mercurial and the next president may not take the same point of view. Uh, so the lack of a bipartisan consensus behind anything always hampers our foreign policy efforts. But I think at least it's the right way to move. And if you start to think about other areas in which we've done this, um, we're still in Korea, we're still in Europe. And in fact, once we decided uh, under Obama that we're going to pull out of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, we started to have second thoughts about this and we started to move back in. I'm afraid that starting to deal with foreign enemies is not something that you can finish it's a little bit like the Golden State Bridge. Once you finish painting it once, you've got to start all over and keep going. I regard this as a permanent charge against what's going on. I think on the second point, he's right to be very suspicious about democratic uh, nation building. American democracy does not export easily to other countries where tribal loyalties may be great and a traditional constitutionalism may be weak. And so as to say that we're there to secure law and order and to let you guys figure out the domestic stuff while protecting against catastrophe, I think is certainly appropriate. I think his directions towards Pakistan are indeed correct. Pakistan has played both ends against the middle for a very long 
long time. Uh, from time to time, they help us, and from time to time, they harbor people whom we would rather see removed. Uh, and I think to the extent that we put a little bit more pressure on them, it's fine. It's always risky, of course, because you have to worry about whether or not the Chinese will then take the side of the Pakistanis on the theory that uh, since we have an enemy in the Afghanis, that they may as well support our enemies. Uh, India may come around to us, but this is very, very difficult. And then the last point is just who's running this thing. And you know, I do know Jim Mattis, and I think the world of him and his technical expertise. And since you're playing you know, basically with hidden hands and you don't know any of the particular details, a lot of it depends upon what your level of confidence in and the people who are putting this together. And I do think of Mattis as somebody who understands what strategy is about. And so I don't think that uh, there's an, any necessary parallel between Obama and the current administration. Indeed, on foreign affairs, I think that uh, Barack Obama was as bad a military strategist and deep thinker on these issues as we've ever seen. And so I'm not optimistic. I think that's the wrong word to use in this case, but I'm modestly hopeful that we can make this a turn for the better. It's quite clear that the slide has continued in recent months, and if we can find a way to slow it down or to reverse it, I'm willing to take the chance. At least for this point, the president has my qualified support. This is the first time in a while that we've been talking about Afghanistan because North Korea has really been front and center in the foreign policy discussion this summer. And, of course, that situation has grown increasingly tense. We've got the North engaging in more and more sophisticated missile tests, holding out the prospect that they could hit the United States. Then you had the president threatening fire and fury was the phrase if, if Pyongyang doesn't back down. Meanwhile, uh, shortly before his departure from the White House, Steve Bannon, who was widely considered one of the president's most influential advisors, gave an interview where he said North Korea's got us. He said the cost of war, especially in South Korea, were too high and it was too unpalatable to seriously entertain. Both of those statements from Trump and Bannon on opposite ends of the spectrum have been criticized by longtime foreign policy observers as, as reckless. Um, what do you make of how the administration has been addressing this so far, Richard? So far, not so good, I think. I mean, uh, it's clear that the only way we can get to the North Koreans is to get to them through the Chinese. And the Chinese are extremely difficult and highly nationalistic and are taking all sorts of aggressive actions elsewhere in the South China Chi, creating fake islands and arming them to the teeth while the courts of justice sit by helplessly. Um, but the key feature about this is that sanctions can work against North Korea because China basically buys huge amounts of stuff from the North Koreans and most of the stuff that they buy from them, they probably pay a premium price um, in order to prop up the economy by way of disguise. And if they decide that they're not going to purchase this stuff, it means they're going to have to buy or be able to buy cheaper goods elsewhere. And if they can do that, they can keep this thing going for a long time. And my guess is that the Chinese do not want the North Koreans bombing Guam or any other part of the world because that would bring a huge American reaction into North Korea, which would put us one step closer to their particular doorstep, which given their own gene jingoistic and somewhat xenophobic nature they don't want. It's also the case that if you're going to go after North Korea, you have to 
take the serious possibility of seeing the death of tens or hundreds of thousands or even more South Koreans because the, China, the North Koreans have this huge artillery mass secreted under these rocks on which they could open up and uh, Seoul is an easy range of their large artillery weapons and it's extremely difficult to take these things out with any kind of weapons, even atomic weapons, which I dare think we would not use, um, would be very, very difficult to do this. So we are certainly stymied, but we have these other situations. Uh, the way to get at North Korea essentially is through the Chinese, and it may well be that somebody is going to plot a regime change. I think it's perfectly clear that the United States cannot announce that even if it wanted to do that. It's just too inflammatory to the Chinese and everybody else. But who knows what the Chinese will do with respect to the North Koreans. So again, here I don't think that the Trump's bombast was good. I don't think that Bannon's abject surrender was good. I think it's a very, very difficult situation in which quiet diplomacy rather than grandstanding is likely to do somewhat better. Uh, so, whereas I think that the Afghanistan policy is probably a better than even shot at succeeding, or at least worth trying, um, I think with respect to North Korea, we have to go between those two extremes. And my guess is that uh, calmer heads have taken over for the president, and that is where we will go forward. So, I, I think the crisis has been deflated. There is a statement about Trump, which I think in many cases is all too true, where he really wants to study something and take control, look out, where he turns it over to somebody else whom we can trust, I think you have a decent chance of success. I'll move you over to elsewhere in Asia. There are various members of the administration, including the president, have been talking pretty tough about China on trade recently. And our listeners know that you're a committed free trader. It has been pointed out by, amongst others, I think most visibly, uh, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, that there are a number of practices that China engages in which would seem by any reasonable measure to not be free trade. For instance, there's the intellectual property theft. There's the requirements that companies build local factories there that force technology transfers. And of course, they subsidize a lot of their exports. Uh, how does someone with your free trade priors, Richard, think about a response to policies like those? Well, actually, I wrote about this in my last Hoover column and contrasted the situation with China, which is much more murky than that with um, NAFTA, Canada, and Mexico, where traditional free trade arguments apply. And so let's sort of take these things one at a time. Um, it's perfectly clear that theft of intellectual property is simply not acceptable. And the Chinese do that by espionage so that there's no trade at all. And the way you understand free trade in an international context is you assume that you'd like to have the same rules governed between nations that in a domestic context govern between firms and individuals. Theft of intellectual property is not something that we would want to accept under these circumstances. And I think they should be very strongly, powerfully condemned for that. Um, it is also the case that uh, they will not find it easy to get foreign partners given the theft of intellectual property. I've had a number of clients over the years who said they'll do business in lots of places, Australia, Chile, South Africa, or whatever, but they won't do business with the Chinese because the moment you give them some information, it will not be kept confidential. It will not be used only on the venture for which it's attended. It will be transferred to other companies inside, and essentially whatever they gain from the trade, they're going to lose from the theft. And I think the Chinese are beginning to understand all of this stuff, that the reputational consequences of their behavior is very terrible, but refusing to do deals with people doesn't stop them from sealing stuff upright. So the Chinese really need to be sanctioned. 
The question is how. We could try to do it um, essentially uh, unilaterally by referring to the, our own domestic trade laws from 1974, or we could try to go through some elaborate WTO um, uh, arrangements, uh, and each of these alternatives are bad. Um, if you do it domestically, it's unilateralism of the worst sort. If you do it internationally, the delays are likely to be interminable. Uh, so you're between a rock and a hard place. And again, you've tried to push back, but if you push back too hard on the theft issue, you may lose them a little bit on the North Korea issue, which I think on balance is a little bit more important. The tie-in arrangements are very, very troublesome. Uh, essentially what happens is the Chinese have a dominant market position and they're saying, if you wish to enter into our country, you have to give us something. If this were a private firm with that kind of a position, we would call this one form of extortion, illegal tie-ins uh, of one kind or another, and we would strike them down under the antitrust laws. But in international affairs, it has always been the case that sovereigns are somehow or other immune from antitrust laws applied by other countries, which is why, for example, OPEC has managed to last as long as it has, even though as a cartel it's a per se antitrust violation under both the European rules and the American rules. So I think in effect uh, you have a legitimate grief about this behavior, uh, but I don't think that you're going to get any legal remedy because the rules on sovereignty and antitrust and competition policy are very different from the rules that apply to particular firms. And you can see this all over. So for example, nobody can force landing rights into any country unless they get a deal from the local country, which means that you have these endlessly bi long bilateral negotiations over how many of my planes can go to your country and how many of your planes can come to my country and so forth. So I don't think that you can do anything with particular that um, that's going to be able to solve the problem. And uh, generally speaking, I think that there's no free, def free trade defense of what the Chinese does. But once you've discovered that they're in violation, there's a terribly difficult problem of trying to figure out what particular remedy are you going to be able to put into place. So the final question that I'll put to you, we're about seven months into the Trump administration. In this first brief period, give me the letter grade that you're putting on the, on the foreign policy side for the Trump administration. Well, it's certainly not an F, I mean, and it's certainly not an A. I'm, I would say for the most part uh, what moves he's made have been unbalanced more sensible than not, in part because I think he has a form strong national security and defense team um, uh, sitting around in the White House, which I think really makes a difference. I think the situation with respect to, for example, the Arab-Israeli uh, situation is probably somewhat better now than it was when we started. There seems to be no continuation of the very strong anti-Israeli drumbeat which characterized the Obama administration in the last months that it's been in office. Uh, in fact, the major news seems to be in the Middle East uh, that Fatah and Hamas are killing each other off or fighting economic boycotts of one sort or another. That cannot be bad. I think that the situation in Syria is no worse than it was, but it's probably only a little bit better. Uh, the trying to figure out a solution for the Kurds will be a nightmare. Uh, there is an area called Kurdistan. You can make a country out of it, but you have to carve up Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, and it's not going to happen without the concurrence of all these parties, and that's not going to happen, particularly given the way in which all these sovereigns are so jealous about their own territory. So I don't regard us as doing particularly badly there. We've already talked about the stuff having to do with um, uh, the Chinese on, on the one hand and the Afghans on the other. I think the situation with Iran, the fact that it's a little bit testy, is probably a good sign rather than a bad 
bad sign. Uh, we know about them, that they will breach every agreement they can to the extent that they can. And we are now in the situation of being locked into a very poor agreement that uh, Obama negotiated early on. But it's extremely difficult to withdraw from that because you can't go back home again. All the sanctions that were once in place have now been lifted. Trade arrangements have been established. And so the hope is that the Iranians, in order to keep free trade, will be less militant against the United States. So far, I would think that that's a disappointment, but not an abject one. I think the president and his team have actually done a better job in dealing with the NATO-type situation, uh, with kind of trying to enforce that thing. I thought that Trump was right to say that they tend to freeload in Europe and that they have to increase their military expenditures. At the same time, the United States has to increase its. Under Obama, we let the Navy, for example, deteriorate uh, so that we have about 275 active ships. Not enough when you need specialized vehicles to work simultaneously in multiple theaters. The Army is too small. The Air Force needs all sorts of updating. Trump has done a little bit on this, but not quite a month. Uh, the great difficulty in the United States is I think that there are many people who prefer social transfer programs to military improvement. I tend to think that the transfer programs fail on their own terms, so I don't want most of them. And I think that the military upgrades are really essential if we're going to be able to deal with multiple threats. A thing that you always worry about is when people sense weakness in the United States because it's spread too thin, uh, then what happens is they're going to take attack. The most famous recent suggestion is that all of the crashes that you start to see of, uh, uh, of various um, American vessels in straits and so forth are attributable in part to the fact that we're sending people out for longer periods of time, the crews are tired, the ships start to get dilapidated, and you really have to understand that depreciation is a hidden force which is the enemy of everything. There's the great temptation in every area of human life to ignore that, to say, well, we got a capital asset uh, from 2000 so it's got a capital asset in 2017, and we don't make the upkeep. Uh, Congress has a lot to answer for this. The president, I think, has some to answer for that. So my grade for the president on foreign affairs is probably around B+, putting aside all of the personal excesses, which are a topic for a very different discussion. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. Org, and you can follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.